Hello and welcome to the first episode of 2019 of IRC Book Club. What are we on here, Lauren? Are we on episode 27? 32. My God, we're on episode 32. I would say time flies when you're having fun. Time flies... Uh, but literally... <laughs> It flies when you're having fun and you're reading sales books and you're enjoying reading sales books and becoming a better salesperson as a result. So we are back. Our last book was Sales Leadership by Keith Rosen. He uh, ended off the discussion by joining us on the show, which was a great episode. I liked him, actually. Good bloke was Keith. This month, moving on, forget Keith. He's dead to us now. Keith who? <laughs> so this month, we are on Eat Their Lunch by Anthony Yannarino. I think I've pronounced that right. He's coming on the show, so he'll, I'm sure, correct us uh, if we've got it wrong. Um, for those of you who are into the show via video, there it is. Go out and buy this one. The subtext of the book is winning customers away from your competition. Anthony Yannarino, author of The Only Sales Guide You Will Ever Need. Mike... You've read the first three chapters. How are you getting and, on? And the forward, which is unlikely, actually. I've read the forward, and whatever the thing after the forward is... Oh, I didn't read a word to the reader. Uh, forward and introduction. I've got to say, it's a really good book. I've really enjoyed it. Um, uh, you know, it's it's full... It's well-suited to um, people who sell in a me-too market, which I know the IT industry doesn't want to admit that it sells in a me-too market, yeah, but a lot of the IT industry is a Me Too market. A lot of every industry is a Me Too. You know, if you're in the Microsoft channel, you're a Me Too supplier. If you're on the Oracle channel, you're a Me Too supplier. If you're in the Click channel, and so on and so forth. So it's well suited to the IT market. So it is interesting with it, Jonathan. And you know, obviously, I'm only three chapters in, so maybe this will change. Is that it's different to a lot of the other sales books because what a lot of the other sales books will talk about is about understanding a prospect's need and then differentiating yourselves against your uh, competitor by linking them back to the product that you sell. Yes. Which this doesn't actually do. That's where Jordan Belfort would take yes. you or even probably Sandler would take you. It's a different thing. and it's, it, it's, it's a bit like that film Training Day where he does a load of crack and then he drinks a load of booze to get some balance in his high. Yeah, this take is the, the edge same. off it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the same <laughs> metaphor. You know, you could read something that was about aligning you to a product, and you could read something that was about competing in a B2 market. This is that one. And the first three chapters I've read, I've really enjoyed. I thought they were really good. Do you know what I felt? I, I, I've, I, and we're going to get into it in a minute. For me, I feel like I'm reading a simplified and more easy to understand and practical version of the Challenger sale. I wouldn't agree with that. Really? No, I wouldn't agree with that. Okay, well, we'll come back to that then. Yeah, yeah. Let's park that and come back to it. Yeah, definitely. So the foreword is by Jeb Blount. Great start. I grew up in an insanely competitive industry. The service I sold. I mean, he had me at the service I sold. Oh, yeah. Great, right. So you were a salesperson who sold a service in yeah. an insanely competitive well, we, market. Right, I'm in. We associate quite heavily ah, with that, yeah. don't we? Yeah, yeah. Great start. Yeah. And I was perceived and treated as a commodity by most buyers, and he had my attention at that point, yeah. Yeah, great. Absolutely. And so um, it, the, the forward is by Jeb Blount, who claims he's a very close friend of Anthony's, which I'm sure he is, um, and that they are, quote-unquote, in violent agreement that the sales profession has got soft and that salespeople have lost their competitiveness, which is, as we all know, a little bit of a pet theme for me. 
It's a pet theme. I think there's also some unnecessary machismo attached with that. Do you think? Yeah. We're not soldiers, are we? No, and I think selling has changed as much as salespeople have got soft. Yeah, 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 I agree. I mean, I think selling has changed for the worse, actually, in many regards. For the worse? Yeah. How so? Uh, this is a complete side topic, actually. But I think what's happening is that all the that, that we now live in an information age that creates a perfectly competitive selling and buying market, definitely in a business-to-consumer world, that then, then points the same types of consumer toward the same product. And everybody is into Starbucks, beards, round glasses. I'm describing you here, Johnny. <laughs> but th- then what that is, that has then transcended the buyer. And actually, the real problem with the buying and selling market isn't the buying and selling in the technology market. It's the wider population who have been manipulated by AI and buying trend software. All right, it is a bigger conversation than the one. Yeah, than exactly. Yeah. Than the one, than one, than the one we're the into today. But the landscape is different because the environment is different. Just the world's different. Isn't and it? I think salespeople are different as well than perhaps salespeople. Yes, you know, when I, I started out in recruitment, well, you were your black book. Well, you, a you were your black book, but business was done differently twenty years ago. Anyway, let's get onto the book. Yes, absolutely. So, a word to the reader: it's my third book in as many years. Fair play. Um. And then the introduction. Um, So let's go into the introduction because it it says, uh, most of us work in mature industries that are overcrowded. Yeah, true. You know, it's fair. And I actually put, well, a lot, actually, a lot of our audience don't, or a lot of my audience doesn't. I think they do. I think they're overcrowded. I think a lot of the markets are overcrowded. I don't know what a lot of the a lot of the markets that you're touching on your desk and you're part of the business. Possibly, are. yeah, possibly. So you're used to working with a, a, a much greater volume of candidates who work in much more mature, crowded markets. For example, ERP. I work with candidates who compete against each other. I send them to the same interview. Yeah, they actually compete with each other. They'll know day each other's day. names day to day. They yeah, see yeah. each other's names in a in a in a visitors book, and, that, and then in a visitors book for an interview. Yeah, whereas if you look at perhaps more on the big data analytics side, those markets are crowded, but they're not yet at peak maturity. And so that those selling landscapes, well, on business intelligence, the selling landscape, actually, we're into a cycle now. It's quite swap- mature, I would Yeah, say. it's mature now. I'm You're sw- into I'm second swapping. generation solutions, you're swapping out. Yeah, but uh, there's a lot of that big data analytics space where people are still in their first generation solution. So it... I did agree with it, but I didn't completely agree with it. Okay. I mean, I agreed with it. But I think the point, the point that Anthony's making here is get used to it. We, most of us do work in mature industries that are overcrowded. You and I do. Yeah. hundred percent recruitment market. And you know, and and we can talk, this is my point about to start the book and using my training day crack analogy is that as much as we want to, um, differentiate ourselves out in the field, quite a difficult thing to do it's not easy not easy but in fairness to Anthony he gets we get stuck into that yeah and and what he talks about is the difference between blue ocean strategy which is for creating new markets where there's no competition and like I said I've got clients that are in that space mm, mm. and live in a blue ocean world and then red ocean where you are absolutely it's boiling and you're in the thick of it and then the thing that I really liked here page two he talks about the rise of inbound marketing the strategy of creating content that generates warm ready to buy leads something with much in common with a unicorn has led sales to be be people to believe 
they are not responsible for prospecting and creating new opportunities, and that they can simply be a social seller, connecting with contacts in hopes of creating an opportunity without having to interrupt them. And I agree with that. I think that's where it has changed. I underline the next bit, actually, more than the first bit, really. This means that many salespeople have also abandoned the responsibility of being trusted advisors in their own right. In their own right. Yeah, in their own right. And, in, and in he's, their referring own right. To, he's referring to the fact that the system does the work for them now. Yes. That that people think, oh, well, Marketo will take care of it or Pardot will take care of it. Or, because or, or, or the system that my business has created for me. Yeah. And that marketing will sort out my lead generation mm, mm, mm. and that the product's that red hot. And I, I do think that's really but the relevant. way the book reads, though, the book reads like that. The book reads like this is him. What's his name? Anthony sat on his Jack Jones with the mobile phone and the laptop, doesn't it? Yeah. And then on the next page, this is a clarion call to push things back towards the fundamentals that sales and selling are built on. And I was like punching the air at this point. I'm like, yes. But I thought it was a really good start. Um, and but, I don't normally read the and, 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 well, and he says, those fundamentals include creating value, capturing mindshare proactively prospecting and working to displace your competitors from your dream client companies. And I wrote here, it's a contact sport. Mm, and, I, and I do think a lot of people forget that selling is a contact sport. Without any doubt. It's a contact sport. It's hard. Well, it, it's a contact sport in many, many um, different ways, isn't it? Contacting the end user, but then contact in terms of sometimes when you come in, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of damage on one side or the other. Now there's a bit I didn't agree with here. Go on. So he says, there is also nothing between the front and back covers of this book that suggests that you crush the competition or perceive your competitor as your enemy. You are not a mafia don or a warlord out to destroy your rivals. You know, do you know, I wrote something else, actually. I, I, I agreed with that. And I don't think you, you didn't. I don't agree with that. I think that actually, sometimes it's a zero-sum game. And well, no, he said, in fairness to him, he says that he uses the word zero-sum game a lot. Yes, but the point is, you know, let's go back to 2009. We were talking about this in the Always Be Hiring podcast earlier. There were times in 2009 when me and you sat here and said, well, it's me, you, your wife, my wife, and our kids versus them. Yes, but Anna Reno's point is you don't have to kill your competition to beat them. No. You're talking about directly attacking them. That's not what he's saying. Am I misinterpreting that? I thought so, yeah. I thought so. But that you have to crush your competition. No, you he don't says, win by focusing on your competition. He is right. He's right. You win by focusing on yourself and the end user prospect. And he is saying then you will therefore end up beating your competition by doing that. But I've got to be honest, Mike, part of what gets me out of bed in the morning sometimes is crushing a competitor. Well, and uh, Anna Reno's saying don't don't take that into your selling game because if you concentrate on that. And oh, fairness, absolutely. And in fairness, Miller Hyman says the same. Yes. He says never never concentrate on your your uh, opponent's weakness concentrate on your strengths with your prospects correct and they're right I agree with them absolutely but often what gets me out of bed is I play sometimes because I, I sometimes one of the best bits about selling for me is knowing that I've left a competitor with his head in his hands wondering what the hell just happened you know I'm completely not like that I couldn't care less alright in any way couldn't, couldn't, I'm not always like that I'm more often I would say 80% of the time I enjoy the win for the sake of the win. But sometimes, actually, there was one that we got just before Christmas. We've invoiced it today. And I know I have kicked a competitor so hard in the nuts. And it felt great. And I loved it. And actually, I took more joy out of hurting my competitor in that scenario than I think I did in the placement itself. So I don't completely agree because some people are driven people by... People are different then. Because I've got to tell you, if that had been my placement, I wish I wouldn't have given the, the other guy a second thought. 
Wouldn't no. have had any, any interest to me at all. No. I think it'd have bothered him more than it bothered me. I just wouldn't. I couldn't care less. Okay. So that's more about my combative personality more than anything else, isn't it? I don't know. I think I'm up for a bit of a fight. <laughs> anyway, but, you know, the introduction's good. Um, and, you know, I, ju- I just underlined loads of it. Um, you know, there's a good bit here. There is no deal that is worth your integrity or, or your character. But, yeah, you're 100% right. I concur. You know, fortunately, the value we, we created was worth more than what my client could save by switching to my competitor. And that's the point he's making about linking the value to you and making your value as an interaction with that uh, prospect more than your competitor's value with the interact of the end user prospect. Yes, completely. That's what he's talking about. Absolutely. And, that's what, and that's he's, what, what he's, he's saying about. is, go out, play your game, play your game better. Add more value to the end user and yeah. you'll win them. Bring value. Yeah, absolutely. Bring something to the party. Um, and, and you, you know, there's a lot of talk about, about competitors here. Competitors so let me ask here. you something, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Right. Is see you smiling for those of you listening to the podcast. <laughs> is it wrong to play dirty? Your definition of dirty is a tough one, isn't it? So you and I, you and I both know a couple of guys who worked in the reseller channel, right? Yes. Who between them, they went through a period where well, they were joint bid. They were, they were joint bid. They were colluding on bids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In public sector. Yeah. We know of that as an yeah. example. Yeah, yeah. Is it wrong? I uh, see. I think that is, but you see, well, actually, is, it's fraudulent and it's criminal. It, correct, it's fraud. But this is about the moral compass, isn't it? You know that that that's where it's an an interesting dilemma. Personally, I, I'm not a particularly dirty salesperson at all. Actually, you know, no, I'm whiter than white, really, with that kind of thing. Can you hear the sirens in the background? That's just unbelievable. It sounds like we're. It's in, literally. It sounds like we live in New York. <laughs> <laughs> we've got really good uh, audio kit and everything yeah, we've, we're not actually in a police station currently. well done IRC you've invested heavily in the audio quality of your podcast that's <laughs> mad isn't it yeah but you know is it, that's a just that, that's a longer conversation that we've got time for let's just read the book yeah so my, my, my question and I think that's an interesting one because he's so he's so keen on no deals worth doing no 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 but actually if I'm te- if I'm if we're talking about displacing a, a a competitor, you know, some of the richest people I know are dirty as hell. Really? Yeah. Because if dirty's breaking the law, I'm not then talking about breaking the law. Well, I'm, just, that... I'm you know I'm just talking about playing hard and dirty. No, no, I just don't think we should go into it. Let's read the book. It's an interesting one. Let's read the book. So uh, you can't speak negatively. I get it. Trying to create doubt about your competitor doesn't do much. And, and we've all been there. You can't create doubt about competitors. No, there's I, no point. I tried to win one in November where I tried to sow doubt. And I realised about a week in, the more doubt I was creating in the mind of the client, and I was successfully creating doubt, actually, she became more resistant. And I lost the deal. Well, she was the idiot that hired the bad person. Yeah. The idiot that hired the idiot. She was the idiot that hired the idiot and you were undermining her decision and therefore you were denigrating your own and I'd done an, uh, sort of influence and persona with her. And what I didn't do, if I look back, and I'm sure the book's going to talk a lot more about this, I didn't demonstrate that much value about us. All I did was freak her out about her own supplier. Yeah. And, and because I knew I had her on the freak out, I rubbed the salt in the wound. 
Well, the, pro- the but problem- actually, I never got the pl- I never the, the, got I mean, the, the project. He doesn't go into it actually, on, uh, Anarino. But the problem with uh, rubbishing your competitor is you're you're actually also telling your prospect that they're an idiot. Yeah, I did. You're an idiot because yeah, you're yeah. using that that company. You're an idiot because you're using that company. They're only ever going to respond negatively to you for that. Yeah, but I couldn't help myself in that scenario because yeah. I thought I was winning because she see she exhibited so much doubt. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, but I mean that's. A nice way of describing, you know, what the book's about. My daughter, my um, five-year-old daughter looked at it. She said, Daddy, why would you want to eat somebody else's lunch? <laughs> but I mean, I th- I, when I've picked up the book to start with, I thought, this is a stupid title. But the more I read the book, the more I think, yeah, yeah, what he's talking about here a lot is it's a zero-sum game. You eat all they eat. How do you make sure you eat as opposed to them? Yeah, and I, mean, I think it's good. And then I, th- I think the other thing I liked, that he mentions a line here in the introduction. We have friends there, they're good people, and they do some really good work in some scenarios. That said, we've got very different ideas about how to serve our clients and the results that we produce. Can I share with you what we do differently and why? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to use that. that. Yeah, I'm yeah, going to use that. Without any doubt, yeah. I thought that was really cool. Um, and then what he talks about, and he explains, and we're going to go into it in chapter one, you're the value proposition. Yeah. Chapter two is capturing mindshare. And chapter three, which we'll cover later today, creating an opening through nurture campaigns and pursuit plans, which I absolutely love to bits. I thought his process in there was beautiful, actually. A process that we all know, but not many of us carry out. Yes, 100%. Well, well, some people don't know, but you and I both know well. So chapter one, you are the value proposition. What do you make of this one, then? Um, you've got, I mean, you've got to go through the whole chapter, really, you know, haven't you, to, to do it. I mean, I, I underlined some key bits in it. Um, let me look at this. So the first bit he's talking about is, he uses the word displacement. Yes. And he's saying, right, okay, so you want to win ABC Corp or whatever example is used. You've got to look at some accounts and think, actually, why is there an opportunity for displacement? Now, I thought, actually, I mean, I did agree with him, he's right, but I thought other people have worded it more nicely in terms of the problem being in some form of pain or trouble. Okay. Actually. But the point he makes Just expand on that a bit. Well, I think if you, you know, if you're to look at Miller Hyman, which obviously is my favourite ever, so maybe we should read that book. I just think Miller Hyman's absolutely right right on the money, really. Um, Is what Anna Reno has done here is he said, here are some signs that the account that you're selling to might at some point make a change. And he's listed them as being uh, the current provider is complacent, uh, yep. The current provider has a sense of entitlement. Yeah. The current provider has apathy or a lack of communication, uh-huh. or there's resentment between the supplier or there's new stakeholders in the supplier, which I've got to tell you, within the end user prospect, which is my absolute favourite. And then he goes well, the on. resentment to, one? Uh, new stakeholders. Well, that, hap- that, I mean, for us, that is the key for, one. For anybody. Do you think for everybody? Oh, yeah, 100%. I bet if you did a straw poll of number one time to go into a prospect that you've been trying to get into I bet it's a new uh, senior decision maker well, it's the number one point of pain for both the incumbents but there, you've hit the nail on the head there what's that word you used you said pain it's pain for everyone I just banged my hand on the desk we've got, <laughs> we've got I keep getting told off about that you probably all heard that like I was drumming uh, but, but, but my point about this is I, I think the chapter's good but what the chapter's really talking about is finding uh, clients and prospects that have got pain and then leveraging that pain yeah that's what he's talking about and and then what about the this grid the four levels of value creation i found that really logical and for me you know, i know from you know when we when we read the sandler book and you loved the submarine i like a good model yeah 
I like this as much as you like the Sandler submarine. Oh, I like this as much as I like the Sandler submarine. So for those of you who are listening, not watching, basically what he's done is he's drawn a, uh, a box with four equal compartments and he's saying, how are you going to enter into your end user prospect? And it goes L1, L2, L3, L4, L4 being the highest, L1 being the lowest. Uh, so what his model's talking about is look as to look to the accounts that might have some sort of displacement and then enter them using this model, I think, basically. Yeah. So what he's saying is, and I'll quote him, the approach in the book is not one where you wait for a client to decide they need to change. And his point is, if you're waiting around for the point at which change is going to take place, you're done. Mm. It ain't happening. What you have to do is compel the client to make a change and to make that difference. So what he explains are there are four levels. Level one being good good product or service, where there's no differentiation. Level two is service, where it's outstanding, outstanding support. Level three is business results. And what he's saying is they're all low levels from which you can't really bring change. And they all come from the left, as he puts it, don't they? Mm, mm, mm. Whereas level four comes from the right, and that's the angle from which we come, which is if we want to displace our competitor, we have to come in as a strategic partner that's bringing a level of value above and beyond mm. anything that the existing incumbent is providing. Well, let's be clear. That's what the book club and all that stuff's about. It's about allowing people to see into the inner, work, inner workings of inward Correct. Revenue. Why, why are we I, sat here doing book club? I've always it's, said that. You know, if, somebody could see what was in, if somebody could see what was inside the box, they'd never phone anybody else. No. That's simple reality. And that's Absolutely. sort of what Anarino was saying, really. Yes. Touch more eloquently. He makes a beautiful point, actually, which I love and completely agree with. He says, however, it is even more important to know that a great salesperson with an acceptable product beats a poor salesperson with an excellent product. Yeah, I wrote, I, I highlighted exactly couldn't, that couldn't line. Couldn't be anything more true, I think. I highlighted that line. Uh, let me do that again. A great salesperson with an acceptable product beats a poor Does he? Very often, I think, yeah. Beats a poor salesman with a good one. Okay, I'm in. You don't look convinced. I'm not a hundred percent. Why? I think because I what think are you thinking some, about Oracle. I think sometimes there are some companies in our industry where you can be an utter muppet and earn three hundred thousand pound a year. Yes, but as a law of average, that's a very small percentage. Yes, and they're probably exceptions. I think they're exceptions. Yeah. Okay, and then your next level, obviously, is uh, uh, service, and what he means to by service is the experience of what it's like to work with work with your organization absolutely and i underline this which he's put helping your client implement use and troubleshoot your product is a higher level of value i think that's hence the rise of the csm really go on so you know uh customer sales manager you know what is that is that account manager no is it a new business salesperson no is it about making sure that the end user to whom you've sold the product can actually use it yeah 100 percent. and i think that's what anarino was talking about here yeah, there's there's almost a rise of the CSM role, isn't Definitely. there? Definitely. We've seen more and more of them in the past few years. I mean, how many did you see five years ago? None. Never heard of it. But why now? Because actually, to ensure that no... Particularly in a cloud-driven world and a SaaS-driven world, where your contract is, what, one year? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's renewable on an annual basis. Actually, uh, the CSM role has become a really key part and benefits realisation, what I think the phrase is benefits realisation, isn't it? Absolutely. And then I've underlined the next bit, which is, are you easy to do business with? To do business with. Same page. <clears throat> yeah. Under level two service. Because these first four points, you know, L1 is talking about product, L2 is talking about service. 
and then L3 is talking about uh, business results. What's interesting is he said L1, L2, L3 are all commoditized. He's even saying that business results, actually just delivering on your promise is a commodity. It's a commodity that anybody And can I think do, he's yeah. right. 100% is right, yeah. 100% is right. Particularly given how available information is. Yeah. Yeah. But then we're going into level four. I mean, this is, you're absolutely right. I thought it was brilliant. Is at what point do you become a strategic partner where somebody, he doesn't say this actually, but where somebody can phone you up, pick your brains, you give them insight and advice that then affects their business. He's saying the point at which you could get an end user prospect to that point, they would buy off you immediately. Or they're more likely to buy off you and you're more likely to displace a competitor. Yeah, correct. He makes a point here. You can't rely on your product to do the work being so good and so compelling as to sell itself. I put in some cases you can if you're a disruptor. Yeah, you can if you're a disruptor, but this... You know, Uber, they're fairly disruptive. They seem to do all right. Their products seem to just do the work for them. Yeah, but this is book isn't aimed at Uber, is it? No, that's a B2C environment. Well, it's, it's not aimed at anybody that's got that level of disruption. That is what he would call a blue ocean salesperson, isn't it? Correct. And he's not referring to blue yeah, he's ocean not, He's not selling to blue ocean, is he? He's selling to people in a tough red ocean market. And what he's talking about as the strategic partner, many years ago, I had a, a boss who once said to me over lunch, and he said... The business is here, if you think about it, he, he, made, he said 33.3% of every deal we win should be because software development create a product. Well, that was it. He said 33.3% of every deal we win should be because marketing listen to the market and they explain that issue to the software development team who build a product that's absolutely what the market wants. He said the other 33% of why we should win the target or 33% of our annual turnover should be because marketing lets the public know that we've listened to exactly the problem that they face and that as a result of that, we can solve the problem. Mm. He said the other 33.3%, that's because the salesman makes a difference somewhere on the, in the environment where actually we wouldn't ordinarily have won the deal. And for me, I think that's the point at which the sales guy becomes a strategic partner. Um, I don't disagree with that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. It's the strategic partner bit where you earn your money. I'd say what, though, for people listening, if you're a you know, salesperson, sales leader, whatever, um, th there's an exercise at the end of this chapter, actually, which I think if you were to look at how you were selling and you were to put that into L1, L2, L3 and L4... I think a lot of the clients that we have live their life in L1 to L3. Not many in L4. And I think if they move towards L4, and let's get right, I'm definitely going to try and do that more. I think we do it a bit, but I'm going to try and do it more. I thought that model was really elegant, simple, good, easy to use. Yeah. I, I, you know, th th those of you that listen to the show, you'll know Mike and I aren't afraid to say we think something's rubbish. Um, I think that's great. Yeah, really it's, good, I think. Uh, more than anything, it's the simplicity of the way he's explained it. Yeah, really good. Really, really good. Very clear, very simple. Are, are you playing L1, L2, L3, or are you L4? And, and and it's got me thinking a lot about what we're doing in our own business. Mm -hmm. so, and it says, you know, all things been equal in re relationships win. <laughs> and another line that I've highlighted. And then he goes, all things been unequal, relationships still win. Yeah, they do. That's the point about the client who I spooked. Yeah, relationship beat you. I spooked, but she, but somebody else had a better relationship. He was doing a terrible job, but he still he still got the account. 
It's nuts. I, it's nice. I come across it all the time. I just think, still got the account with that recruiter, and I think they think I'm being bitter. I'm not a genuinely sitting thinking, what, what are you doing? Yeah. Why are you doing that? And I can't tell you how spooked I got her about it. Yeah, it's nuts. But it? his relationship hung in there. His relationship beat me. And he got, he placed a sales director and two sales guys there. He lived on 45 grand's worth of fees, Mike. Nuts, that, isn't it? Yeah. And then if you're, if you're offering and your competitor's offering are the same, then the person with the best relationship wins. There being with no other real differentiation. If your competitor's offer is better, but you have deep relationships, you are still likely to win. Brackets. We humans are not rational creatures. We are rationalising creatures. I thought that was great. Loved it. 100% right. I mean, what do you make of this heading then? Different stakeholders need different levels of value on page 30. Yeah, I agree. So simple. Do you? Yeah. I See, I didn't agree with that. Why? Because I think irrespective of uh, your level of, you know, being a stakeholder, when you look at L1 to L4, I think everybody wants to be sold to like their strategic partner. I think it's foolish to say they don't really. I think if we blue sheeted, still on Miller Hyman, yeah. <laughs> I think if we blue sheeted an account and you looked at different levels of buying influence, everybody's got wins and results, haven't they? Yeah. Right? Some people's wins and results are quite low level. I disagree with that so let's take a client we don't deal with i have no issue with the company by the way i'm not picking them for any other reason than i know the name is scc yeah so they use recruiters their internal recruiters a guy called chris hamer hello chris oh, ex-colleague of mine yeah, nice man chris hamer lovely yeah. guy lovely yeah guy. Top, well, he's been there 20 years so he's no, yeah. one's, no one's fooled is he he can't be an idiot so you've got scc they do use recruiters Who's the decision maker at scc is it chris hamer or what's the fellow that owns it i should know that peter the rigby's the rigby so is it is it Hamer or Rigby for the buyer of uh, recruitment services? It's Hamer. Okay. So what does Hamer want then? Do you think he wants product service, business results, or a strategic partner? Product service. You reckon? He doesn't want a strategic partner. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? I mean, I've just come up with his name now to get him on, or to, or to mail him. He's a nice fellow. I haven't spoke to him for, I don't know, 10 years, I think, but... Be interesting. It'd be interesting to he ask. Couldn't care less. Well, here's something deliver. that we just made up on the show, then, John, Jonathan. How about between now and whenever we next do the book club, why don't we reach out to a few people and ask them? What do you want, product, service, or a strategic partner? Yeah. But this is the point. In recruitments, a lot of clients don't know they need a strategic partner until you show them that you can be one. Do you reckon? Yeah. So actually, if if Chris Haber knew that we could be a strategic partner, do you think he would then want a strategic partner? No. Do you not? Nope. Right. He's a completely utilitarian buyer. Oh, because he does use recruiters. I've no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, what, what, and the reality is a we, job there and a recruiter placed him. And we could engage with him tomorrow if we wanted. I don't know. I mean, I th it was always very, he's always very approachable when I phoned him. So I'm, yeah. I'm sure I could phone him and ask him that. It's an, it's an open, from a recruitment perspective, what he doesn't want is a strategic They buy on price, as I remember. It's it, a totally price-led buying decision. Yeah. So and let's be clear, they're a pretty successful company. And in all the time that I've known him, nobody's ever really put themselves in there as a strategic partner. Now, Anthony will say, and maybe Anthony's going to listen to the different episodes of the show, he'd say, but that's your job, is to position yourself as a strategic that's partner. That's my point. That's what I'm making about this. So that's why I don't get that he says that. What do you mean? Well, different stakeholders need different levels of value. No, they don't. They all need to be L4s. They all, some, at some point, you've got to demonstrate to somebody that you can do something that nobody else can do. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's what I thought about that. We obviously thought different things about it. 
Okay. Um, and then the whoop. Easy. And then we got to the um, the <laughs> last those, page for those of, the of you for those of you watching in black and white, Mike. Uh, I'm just destroying destroying it. the kit in the in the room here. So, so 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 the last thing I don't know if you've got anything else to cover on it, but the last thing I thought was 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 brilliant. Go on, unless you want to. I've got one point. It says super tra transactional does not simply mean discounting or ma making price concessions. The opposite strategy is super relational, and I get that, and I get the whole point about becoming this strategic advisor. My issue with it is, being a strategic advisor isn't a scalable. Yes, I agree. I hadn't thought that, but you're 100% right. And I did think, as I sat there, I'm thinking, great, okay. And, I, and I'm right, I'm saying that from the context of a book I'm reading at the moment about called Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman. I think if you rang Reid Hoffman, he'd say, that's no use to me. I can't Blitzscale a company being a strategic advisor to every customer. Yeah, fair point. Uh, we we can't do that. We have to process drive. We have to process drive the way that we would acquire clients. I think you're right. Yeah. So I, I did think, from a scalability perspective, it's not a scalable strategy. As an individual salesperson, it's a great strategy, but I think if you spoke to a lot of CEOs, they'd say, "Hmm, not scalable." I think you're right. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. The exercise at the end of the chapter thought was brilliant. Yeah. So point one: make a list of five contacts in your top five dream clients. What level of value would they say you create for them? Write down your best guess for each of them. Yeah, Two, good that. Write down three things you might be able to do to move up to a higher level of value for each of these prospective client contacts. I I'm going to do that. Good. I thought that was a brilliant exercise, and I thought that was a really good opening chapter. Very elegant as well. Uh, just as a quick FYI, it, it, there is um, an accompanying worksheet that goes with the book, eattheirlunch.training. Uh, I did look that up. Yeah, pretty good. Worksheet's not available yet. Right, okay. Um, so I'll give Anthony a nudge on that uh, in case any of our listeners are out reading the book, buying the book, and wanting to download the worksheet. So then chapter two, Capturing Mindshare, Mike. Yeah. So um, this is an extension to the first chapter, isn't it? Um, and, <coughs> and I mean, you can tell what I do, actually. I read the book and underline the bits that, uh, that stick out to me. And the first sort of subsection says the battle for mind share. Um, and he goes, one of the most unprecedented metrics in sales is wallet share. The percentage that is indicated by what portion of the client's total spend they're spending with you. This is a bit underlined. I have never understood why some salespeople and sales organizations go to all the trouble to win a new opportunity and then settle for 10% of the company spending in their category without so much as even a fight. Now I've got my view on that. What do you reckon? Go on, explain again. What do you mean? So he says, I have never understood, basically saying, why go to all the trouble of getting through the door and then not exploiting and taking all the money out of the client? Why because they I think the natural another? predilection of some new... It, I put that. I if said, because I'm a new business, guys. If I'm a new business hunter, my natural predilection is to win and move. Correct, 100%. That's what I thought. So that's and an organisational failure, not the individual's failure. Yeah, and I failure. didn't get why, why he put that down. I thought it's pretty obvious he actually knows the answer to that, I'm sure. You know, in reality, you and I bo both suffer that. 100%. I've won, but, I've won, I've beaten you, I'm moving on. And actually, you know, we, we both, we did a strategic review before Christmas. We looked at a load of accounts and went, oh my God, there's a load more wallet share in, e in a load of these accounts. Yes. And I think that's, I had a slight issue with that because I think when you're going to hire a new business salesperson, because this book is for a new business salesperson. Yes, it is. That's what it's set out for. You have to then accept the failings of the new business salespeople. Do you know, I think that's an unfair comment to say it's purely new business salesperson. Okay. I think, yes, because I think if you're an account manager looking to win wallet share, 
across an account in competitive environments, you've still got to win mindshare and you've still got to become a strategic advisor. If anything, you've got to become more of a strategic advisor if you want to keep your account. Fair enough. I mean, and I, grow your account. It reads to me as a book set out for a new business guy, really. He then goes on to say, the metric is subjective, but the result is quite tangible. The metric is mindshare. And his point is, how do you measure mindshare? You can't really. No. But you'll know if you've got it because you're getting more business. It makes a really interesting point here about how do you develop this thinking and produce valuable insights? You want to start with newspapers, whether printed, digital or both. Stay up to date on economic, political, legal, technological, scientific and cultural trends. Since all of these affect your client in some way and you can mine them for insights, things will impact your dream clients. Magazines and business journals also help you work with your ideas and insights. That's great. How many years did you and I subscribe to The Economist in this business and leave it there for people who wouldn't read it? And how many times did we did I walk into the office and put a Harvard Business Review in front of somebody but, and say, know, there's you, a you great know, article about your market sector there, I'd read that. But you were right a minute ago. You know, it's it, 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 a lot, you know, that's not a scalable thing to do, is it? Because you can only employ really clever, involved people. It takes a clever, bright, involved, involved engaged individual to do that. To pick up the Harvard Business Review, go read an article that's going to take him an hour of his time and require that he gets his highlighter out, clip it out of the magazine, and then think, hmm, I'm going to bring that up in conversation with that client next month. Mm, mm, I agree. And that's the challenge is that's not scalable. And then that becomes actually a recruitment and hiring issue. Yes, completely. In, in many respects. People capable of doing And that. my other issue with that, and let, don't get me wrong, I think it couldn't be more right. Anthony, if you're listening, I'm not criticising it at a concept level. My issue is, I think you millennial won't do it. Completely agree. Very few millennials will do that. One, you millennials don't read long-form content. They don't. They don't consume long-form content. They consume content in short... That most millennials think that Tumblr is a source of source of information. Do you know, I've never even looked That's at a it. Very, very unfair comment. And I've got Lauren sat here looking at us like, <laughs> "What the hell?" Um, but a, a lot of the a lot of millennials won't do it. And I, I you and I have got very, very strong first-hand experience of that. I agree completely. They won't. So, do it. And, and therefore, but it is a good idea. It's it's not even a good idea. It's the bang right idea. And what's funny is, you know, when I first came into recruitment, believe it or not, viewers, I was an extremely baby-faced young salesman um, in an environment where my typical client or candidate was best part of at least twice my age. And at the time, Steve Griffith said to me, listen, mate, you, you, you've got a choice. You've either got to be brilliant, brilliant or brilliant. Otherwise, they're going to hate you. Mm. And I was running a team at 25 so I made a, at the time when I was 25, this is 20 years ago, I made a very deliberate point of thinking I've got to be better, more well-read than any candidate that walks through the door, more knowledgeable than any candidate walks through the door, more knowledgeable than any client. And I used to read the Harvard Business Review and books, and I used to deliberately mention shit to clients where I knew they'd not read it or they didn't know. And mm. they'd sit there and they'd look at me and think, who is this child that sort of <laughs> who is this small boy that knows what he's on about but that's what he's on about he is because they immediately went i like this kid he's bringing something to the party but it is a problem from a from a scalability and a recruitment perspective correct real problem that correct massively and that's what i was saying at the start of the show when i said you know a lot of the um a lot of this this book feels like it's a man sat on his jack jones 
with a mobile and a laptop. Obviously a good salesman. Yes. What do you think of keeper files so you can use them to help shape the lens through which your dream client thinks about? I thought that's a bit antiquated. Try, try Evernote. Uh, I don't like Evernote. I <laughs> know you don't. I know you don't. I don't know what page you're on. Okay. What's next bit? Uh, next bit I, I, I got to that I really liked. So on page 39. Okay. And, and I mean, I don't underline as much as you really, but I, he was talking about the trusted advisor. So I've got to tell you, is I've highlighted I, the same bit. I've highlighted the same thing. <laughs> I just hate the phrase, the trusted advisor. Thank you. I properly hate it. Well, for those of you who are listening or watching, Mike and I started the book club concept two years ago. Ah, uh, yeah, I'd forgotten read that book, actually. And the first one we did, I guess it's the pilot. Mm, 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 uh, probably. With Christina Bow came and talked about, we did like a two-hour show on the trusted advisor. Yes. Um... I guess that was the precursor to this concept. So if anybody's interested, we did talk about the sales book, The Trusted Advisor, and we both absolutely hated it. But what Ian Arena has done beautifully, The Trusted Advisor makes sense of the world in which her clients find themselves. She understands the forces that are at work on her client's business and has a command of the facts. Yes. I just thought, you've absolutely nailed that, Ian Arena. You've just got that. That is what The Trusted Advisor does. Yeah. I know I'm a trusted advisor, not to loads of clients, but a few. But to some. One in particular, Chief Executive, phoned me and said, right, Mike, this is, my this is my problem, what do I do? Yeah. And that's where we're at an L4 with them, isn't it? Yes. The question, of course, is from a new business perspective, is how do you get to that trusted advisor status quickly? Where you're that Which credible. Which solely um, talk about in this book. Where you're seen as somebody they can ring up and say, what am I going to do now? Correct, yeah. And that they know actually... If there's something to be sold to them, you'll sell it. But if there's not, you'll still give them the... You, you know, my financial, advi financial <laughs> advisor and the accountant, I, I email them both together at the same time before I do anything. Right. They're my trusted advisors, aren't they? They're your gang. They're your the, team. The, they know more about that than I do, so therefore I don't have to think about it. And actually, this is sort of what, what he's referring to here is you need to be perceived as the person that knows more about the service that you offer than they do Whereas actually a lot, you get a lot of the recruitment market, you know, you were laughing this morning saying about some somebody at the weekend who was a better recruitment consultant than you. <laughs> True though, isn't it? Yeah. But, but that, that's what Ian Arena was talking about between L1, L2, L3 and L4. And I just thought that was a brilliant part of the book, actually. So tell me this, Mike. Is a trusted advisor providing free consultancy? Because David Sandler would say that your trusted advisor is providing free consultancy. I think the trusted advisor is providing free consultancy. I think the definition, however... Of, of where Sanderson, uh, where Sandler, sorry, doesn't uh, explain himself well is, is that the trusted advisor provides opinion but not delivery. Okay, so what he's saying is the trusted advisor is is provoking thought but not the delivery of the solution. Whereas what Sandler doesn't do well in his book is distinguish between yeah, seems to distinguish between the two things. Because if you could pitch up to somebody and say, listen, this is your problem. This is how I reckon you'd fix it. And the client goes, all right, fix it, go, all right, I'm going to send you an invoice for that. <laughs> Whereas yeah. I think that that initial two bit of this is your problem, this is how you fix it, is that free consultancy? So it's, a, it, 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 it's a free diagnosis rather than it being free consultancy, isn't it? Yeah, because if you're cute, if you're cute, the next part of your conversation with the client is, and when I bring my consultants here next week I'll for, fix it for, you. For, an, for an initial strategy consult, Mr. Client, 
and we'll get this sorted for you, I'm sure. I'll tell you now, if, if anybody was listening who had been recruiting for more than two months, phones me up, and I can't tell them what's wrong with their recruitment campaign, I will do the recruitment for them for free. Yeah, we don't deserve we don't deserve to be in the game. Because these guys, you know, we have people out there recruiting for two months, oh, the market's terrible, all the rest of it. No, it's not. You're no, just doing it wrong. There's something wrong with your campaign, mate. Something wrong with your campaign. It's wrong, 100%. Yeah. It's broken. Something wrong it with your campaign. It. There's something wrong with your partners. No, I can fix it for something you, Something wrong with your internal partners. There's something wrong with your job spec. There's something wrong somewhere. There's a company in Sheffield that I went to see about a year and a half ago. I mean, you'll know who they are. And we went through this scenario and I said to him, that's where your problem is. He went, right, okay, um, I'm going to brief you right now, Mike. Yeah. So actually, was I trust? Was I giving him free consulting? Maybe you went straight, but you went straight in at L four. Yes, I mean it helps that I knew him from a previous life. I don't think he would have given me a face to face appointment if I hadn't previously have known him. Yeah. Okay. And then he actually starts giving an example here that couldn't be more apt for our industry. What page are you on? So he starts talking about the impact of super trends. Oh yeah, I'm here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what he means by this is, in fact, I'll, I'll read it so that it's clear. But I, I do recommend... It's a very long bit. I put blah, 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 could have summarised it in a page <laughs> later on. I do recommend you, you, you've got to go out and get this book. Um, you, you, it, it's not enough that we're going to tell you about it because it is good and you're going to get a lot out of it. There are large universal trends that explain the dissonance your clients experience. These are tectonic shifts like demographic, technological, political and economic changes. These super trends provide opportunities and challenges both of which lead to change. So what he's talking about here is looking at the bigger, 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 bigger picture. In NLP, we call it chunking up. So a good example is, the example he gives here is... Um, he's an example about the population getting older. Yeah, 4.3 million people retiring. Savings have gone down, inflation's gone up. Yeah, I mean, I'm summarising. This is why I went blah blah blah. So he could yeah. have said that in a paragraph, really. And he said, "You're selling life. You said you're selling pensions. Why don't you just pitch around to people and say, listen, the number of people uh, living longer has gone up. Uh, people's savings have gone down. Inflation's gone up. So there's going to be a gap somewhere in your pension unless you get saving right now." Correct. And I mean, he's a hundred percent right. Yeah, you know, we, you're using the super trend to create the drive. The yeah, there's forward. a point going to be about this whole Brexit thing, one way or the other, either. You know, we're going to get a deal with the European Union and then the economy is going to fly for a bit. Yeah. At which point recruitment's going to be a problem. Or we're not going to get a deal and the economy's going to tank a bit. At which point recruitment's going to be a problem. Correct. <laughs> I mean, it's just, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, if Ian Arena was sat here now, he'd say, right, what are you doing about that? He'd say the same to our clients about that obvious. Because he's because in, in the bit that you've, you, you've highlighted, I'm sure he says something like they are uh, points of information that are so readily available. No one's ever going to dispute with them. Correct. They're, they're fundamental universal truths. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. About the market, but at the same time, having presented those fundamental universal truths, in and of itself, you're more credible with the client. Even though they're already out there. Yes. It's about doing your homework and doing your work. So a good example here he gives on technology, trends. Cloud computing eliminates operational issues and reduces costs. Companies are eliminating non-core competencies, including running servers and scaling software to meet the needs of their businesses. They're also pursuing speed. More employees are working from home. In 2016, 45% of employees said they sometimes work from home. And what he's pointing is he's saying these are technological and cultural shifts. Mm. And the smart salesman is using those as his entree into the client. Yeah, and he's 100% right. He, you know, he, I don't know what page you're on, but on page 45, he then goes into implications. And he explains it really, really well, I think. Yeah. Just the book's well written, actually. Yeah, absolutely. 
and about how that fits in to talking about a much more strategic issue. So, for example, an issue I'm talking about this morning with a client, obviously the NHS are going to spend a boatload of cash to Theresa May's finally actually decided to do some governing rather than talking about Brexit and made a big announcement about the NHS today. That announcement is all about um, driving patient care at the point of uh, mobile and smartphone. And I've got a load of clients that are right in that space. Cool. Therefore, the implications of that are that there's going to be a gold rush of hiring in that market space, which is going to create a candidate shortage elsewhere. So what are those other companies going to do that are in the less sexy, less funded parts of the healthcare tech space to ensure that they can still fill sales vacancies when any half smart candidate is going to go out and go after those other jobs? Yeah, and that, right. and that's my strategic approach, not necessarily to the companies that have got the money to hire at that level, but to the other ones. Yes. And that's the point he's making, isn't it? 100% it is. And again, you know, I, I, there's a an exercise at the end of the chapter that I've put time in my diary to do. Yeah, excellent. They're really good. I just think that, you know, I'm two two chapters in right now. I started doing it this morning. So it's brilliant. Yeah, very highly recommended this book. I would go as far as to say he's now in the more highly recommended category than Keith Rosen. No offence, no, no, Keith. No, I, well, I don't think it competes it's with Keith Rosen. Because Keith Rosen's appealing to our sales leadership audience. Um, but actually, we're on a run now. Actually, do I throw it Sandler? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. He wipes the floor with Sandler. Well, you know my issue. Well, this is, guy's a sales guy. We, he's a sales guy, but he's actually giving me some practical, useful stuff I can work with. Oh, Sandler did that as well. I just think this, this is better. I preferred it. Yeah. Then chapter three, creating an opening through nurture campaigns and pursuit plans. I just loved this to bits. Yeah, me too. I mean, I've put up the, I tend to write at the start of a chapter once I've read the whole chapter, and I've just put a great, simple process in fairness, I do actually follow quite a bit of this. Yeah, me too. Um, but I mean... A lot of this is how you and I were dragged up, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, listen, if you know, if you were sat there writing your 2019 business plan of how to go about and win new business and you wanted to get in granular detail, I'd buy the book just for this chapter. It's an interesting one, though. Why? You and I really like this. Because you and I aren't afraid of picking up a phone and making a cold call. But... <laughs> I think, but, a lot, I think a lot of the clients will. But a lot of the people I think we work with are afraid of making a cold call. They're, they're, they're not in the ERP software market. A lot of the people I deal with will look at this and I think they will be petrified. Do you think they try and automate it? No. I'm going to replace the call with an email. Yeah. They won't make that call. They won't leave that voicemail. They won't ring up and assumptively ask for an, um, uh, semi-assumptively ask for a meeting. I didn't like that bit of his scripting, actually, to be perfectly honest. Um, he didn't. He doesn't like alternate choice. It repels clients. It doesn't repel mine. <laughs> I don't mean, know, because we sell salespeople, though, so I think they're pretty comfortable with it. But Yeah, absolutely. But, but the fact is that the actually getting straight in and saying, this is Anthony Ian Arino with XYZ Widgets. I'm calling you today to ask you for a 20-minute meeting where I can share with you an executive briefing about four trends that will have the biggest impact on manufacturers in the next 18 to 24 months. I'll also provide you with the questions we are answering for our clients so you can share them with your management team there at AAA. How does Thursday look for a 20-minute briefing? Right. Fair play. I'd say if somebody made that call, you know, 20 times a day, they'd get some appointments. Somebody will, somebody will go. But the point is, he's making is he's saying... Look, you're not not many of those going to convert. What you're actually doing is making a statement to your client, which is, yes. I'm yeah, starting yeah. this game in a different place than everyone else. Yep. And just to be clear for people that are listening, in this chapter, 
there is a set workflow for canvassing clients yes. with different kinds of mediums. And it's a, it's, it's a simple process. You know, many years ago, I remember when you and I first started working together, you used to have this Excel spreadsheet. You still talk about that, don't you? But it works. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And on it was literally your call cadence. Yes. Call one, call two, call three, call four, call five, call six, call seven. Well, what have I got planned for this year? Same as. You've seen it. What have I got planned? Exactly that. Yes. Call cadence. And I like, so what he talks about um, is, I'll tell you what was really interesting is he talks about, uh, an example he gives here is about recruitment services. I know, yeah. And he actually uses the phrase employer value proposition. Which, if you read, uh, when you read the always, my book, Always Be Hiring, I just yabber on about this, employee value proposition, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, you don't want to start the conversation over email. Email is the choice of salespeople who start at a lower level of value. So I'm not 100% sold on that, actually. Why? Because I think email is a bit like the Blitz. Well, he's saying, you, but he's saying the opposite of that. He's saying it's wet and it's not, it doesn't soften the ground. Well, good for him. <laughs> you know, whatever. I don't think it's wet. You know, I, yeah, I, mean, I don't agree with that. It goes back to my conversation about scalability. It's the beauty so much, of email is it's scalable. It's not so much that. I just think it's a, you know, the way I've tended to do it is drop people an email and let them know I'm going to call in a couple of days and then actually call them. And then actually pick actually up the blower. really phone them. Yes. In real life. I think your point is, a lot of people won't phone them in real life. No, they hope that they're going to send an email campaign and they're going to get five incoming leads. Oh, I didn't get to call the ones that didn't come back to me because my diary was full enough anyway. <laughs> That's what they're hoping for, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So what you're getting in chapter three, um, and he's talking about all, all sorts of different things. One of the things I quite like is he starts talking about providing proof and where you can get your oh, research. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I did it. That, Facts, you know, figures, yeah. views, values. It's all out there, you know, to create these kind of compelling arguments. It's all publicly available information. I've got to tell you, Pricey, the best place I've ever got that information is two places, Harvard Business Review and The Economist. I cancelled our subscription to Harvard Business Review. Having read this, I'm going to reunite it. Because I've used it the amount of times where I've rung a client, talked to them about an article in the Harvard Business Review, and that's been enough. Well, of course it's enough, isn't it? Because the client sat there going, this guy's a businessman. Well, it's about differentiation, isn't it? Yeah. It's differentiated so me enough to get me an appointment. you just posted a CV out? Nope. And, I, and, and I've stopped reading it. I was like, oh, it's useless. You know, you get down on good ideas sometimes. But actually, it's the right thing to do. And it's always full of really interesting articles about stuff that matter really badly to our customers. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I like the, the fact that he talks about sequencing your message. You love it. I think that's right. Yeah, I think I think all too often salespeople just randomly phone and I people up. I, I, I highlighted this bit in sequencing your message. I like to start with a good number of dream clients. He uses this phrase, "dream clients." Mm, mm. Obviously, Millerheim and they call it ideal customer. Same thing. Same thing. Um, and for, so here, for me, the number is sixty, simply because I can break that number into four groups and communicate over four weeks. Mm. And that really got me thinking, because I'm looking at one particular territory that I... I well, he's I, saying he's going to do 15 a week, and then they're going to overlap in the workflow, isn't it? By which point, you're going to be pretty busy. Yeah, you're, right. make, you're making a lot of calls. And actually, it, it really gets you thinking about, well, who am I going to attack? It does, yeah, 100%. There's no point, you know, you, you can only... Really, how many prospects can you manage at once, even when you're prospecting? 
it's easy to do to, them properly. Yeah. I mean, you and I've worked in environments where we've made 400 calls each a week. Yes. But actually we were making 250. We were making a hundred just to four people. Yeah. And we were making 200, I mean, and we were making 200 calls a week to prospects that were never, ever, ever going to buy off us. And for whom our product or service was never even remotely relevant. Correct. Yeah. hundred percent. So that, that, that was good. It got me thinking a little bit. Um, and then the next bit of it is the cadence, isn't it, of calling yeah, them. So basically so it, saying, take your first 15, call voicemail, email, uh, and then do that each week, and then you've got them overlapping yeah, each other as you go through. And then hit them with some content later on in the process, hit them with a bit more content. And that's why I think it's like a, a simplified, better version of the challenger sale. Because in many respects, what he's saying is be a challenger and, and create... I think a, he's it, saying be a challenger in part of your content. I think it's a... a pra- for me... The Challenger Customer or The Challenger Sale, more The Challenger Customer as a book, was a great book, but I felt there was no real practical application. It's all about corporate enterprise, marketing, creating content, whereas this is about being down in the weeds and being a challenger. Yeah, I mean, I didn't like The Challenger Sale. Why? Um, Because I thought it creates an absolutely super idealistic process that nobody's going to follow. Yeah, and it's, an, it, it, it's a process that's expensive to follow. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. actually, if I... You know, Keith Rosen talked a lot about creating microcultures, didn't he? Yes, he did. And if I work... Let's say I went to work at Company X tomorrow and I was one of 15 sales guys. There's not a lot of marketing spend going on. Mm. And actually, I wake up one morning and realise, shit, I'm on my own here. It's me versus the world. I could run a challenge a process with this that's what i was saying to you about this book though this book is a me versus the world book yes but i could do it inside the confines of a bigger job definitely i yeah. could create my own i've got one particular client and a large part of his criteria in hiring is he admits we've got no marketing here we're we're a bit bootstrapped we're fast moving fast growth we're scaling up really quickly i need people who are clever enough to find angles and create their own campaigns Mm. And what he's referring to is this, is somebody who can sit there and go, I'll create a value proposition and I'll create a bit of content, even if it's a micro piece of content mm. that hits home. Whereas I think sometimes a lot of these other books, like Challenger is an example, yeah, great, get your marketing to go out, do a 5,000 customer piece of research. Yeah, yeah, pretty brilliant, yeah. But I'm not going to live in with that. Well, you're not going to do it either, are you? No. This is doable. That was my problem with the challenges, yeah. by the way. This is very doable, and I, and I like it. And again, you know, at the back end of the book, at the back of chapter three, do this now. Make a list of resources you can use as part of your nurture campaign. Insights, proof providers, facts and figures, views and values. Sketch out your 13-week campaign to nurture your dream client. I'm actually going to do that. Me too, yeah. I've been doing so. I mean, it's interesting because I've put some stuff together, as you've seen, all the rest of it. For, uh, for for the start of this year. It's not that far, far off that, but I've rewritten my initial letter based on what he's got in here. Have you? Mm. Right. So fair play. I'm, I'm really looking forward to having this guy on the show. I feel like we should have given I'm, him a harder time, but what's the point? I, I, I'm, I'm nervous about being sycophantic now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, first three chapters. Next week, we will do chapters four, five, and six, I guess, Mike. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy with that. Which is chapter four is prospecting with the intention of displacement. Um, oh, what's chapter five? Let's have a look. Chapter five is helping your dream client discover something about themselves, and chapter six is creating opportunities. 
useful stuff this everybody uh, we will see you next week happy new year thank you goodbye mm-hmm.